Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. We are obviously in the, in the uh, deep part of the summer as uh, people are off doing things, but I'm thrilled that you're here this morning uh, as we continue to step into Mark chapter 2. Uh, just a couple things I just want to mention. Uh, one's a prayer request. The other is just uh, appreciation for um, Barb Anderson and Abe who helped coordinate our soccer camp this last week. I know that they had a bunch of you volunteering and uh, it looked like it was outstanding. I uh, was over there a few times just to kind of take a peek, and uh, they were, it was great. I think they had close to 98 kids uh, maximum, and, which is, what, 20 over what we had last year or something like that. So, uh, and I think there's at least over half the people um, weren't part of our church community here. They were outside of that, and so uh, it's just a huge congratulations to them and appreciation for all the them leading a great team and doing a fabulous work with soccer camp, and now we're double down into uh, VBS coming up next week. I know that someone told me there were some families that were at soccer camp and they're planning on heading to VBS as well, so I think it's outstanding, and just congrats to our team for doing such an ex- excellent job on it. I'd appreciate prayer this week. Um, it's almost a normal week for me, just being that uh, we're, my wife and I are heading for vacation after next Sunday, so we actually are looking forward to that. Uh, that that'll be nice. But this uh, Thursday, I have to fly back to Portland, Oregon. I've got a family back there that asked me to do a funeral for their mother. Uh, fortunately, she uh, trusted Christ about four years ago, so it'll be a nice celebration of life. The trick to it and the prayer request is the only way to get back here is I have to take the red eye Sunday morning so I got to leave at one in the morning out of there, get in here at six, and then tee it up and try to say something intelligent on Sunday morning. So uh, I'd appreciate your prayers for that little adventure, but uh, you know, the opportunity we can to serve people is always a privilege, regardless of what uh, inconveniences that it might create in terms of our schedule. I'm going to invite you to bow with me and pray before we step into his word this morning. You know, Father, I thank you for just this community of faith. I thank you for our worship team who always presents to us a true sense of worship that we're not so much falling in love with the songs, but it always takes us to the person that we're trying to worship, and that's Jesus. I thank you for those who volunteer enormous amounts of time to care for other individuals, and it becomes the true reflection of the story of the Gospel of Mark because Jesus exemplifies of be, what it means to be a servant. Um, and I just pray, Father, that you will continue to help us see the fruit of our labors. We all need in our own finite journey the encouragement to see that the things that we do make a difference and ultimately we understand that, that our labor is never in vain in the Lord. And yet it's so exciting to see the life change that happens in people that we present the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pray that we would be diligent in that journey as we serve, and thank you for those who uh, just continue to make the sacrifices uh, to invest in the lives of others. As we step into your word again this morning, we just ask for your spirit to be our teacher, to instruct us, Uh, not just to gain information, Father, but that he would put upon our hearts those things where we are to take a step of faith and trusting uh, your calling on our life, even with the truth we talk about this morning. Uh, Thanks for our time. We keep entrusting it to you and our lives to your work, and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. 
Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 13, is talking about Jesus' journey as he does sort of this itinerant ministry. And it says this, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for they were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, or the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, uh, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but to sinners. You know, there's something unique about this passage that I really love because it helps us to try to understand that Jesus values people very differently than often we do. Uh, as I begin to look through this process, uh, Levi is actually kind of another name for Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, so don't be confused by who he is. And we know that Jesus has already been in a journey, but earlier in chapter 1, that several, he's gathered several of these men together. And I am assuming at this point that Matthew has already been in touch with Jesus. There's, uh, they've traveled around, and we'll talk about it, is uh, that the, when you get to this passage, it always puzzled me for a while that Jesus is walking along, seems to see Levi sitting there doing his tax collecting thing, and he just turns to him and says, follow me, and he gets up and drops everything and follows him. And I went, wow, was that like hypnotic suggestion? Or like, how could he just, out of the blue, drop everything and follow Jesus? Well, I, I think that's a bit of a misnomer because I think he's been part of this collective group that Jesus has been touching base with already. And just to remind you of some of the elements, the context of this, I believe G uh, Levi has probably already been traveling with Jesus a little bit. Uh, he may not have been involved in all of these, but in John 2-6, to we discover that Jesus took his men and other disciples on a bit of a journey. In fact, in John chapter 2, they went to a wedding. He and the disciples and his mother uh, went to a wedding, and Jesus performed a miracle there. And I uh, I'm under, under the belief and conviction that I think Matthew was part of that group that went to the wedding. So he saw Jesus do an incredible miracle. I think he was with Jesus when he went to the temple and cleansed it because you'll read there that the disciples, after he cleansed it, remembered some things that Jesus had talked about from the Old Testament and, and in terms of his zeal for the house of God. And so he saw the passion of Jesus as he was sort of protecting and defending the reality of God's temple and what it was truly intended for. The Nicodemus and the new birth in John chapter 3, the disciples were with Jesus when Nicodemus comes to him at night and has this great theological discussion about what it means to be born from above. And Jesus goes through this discussion with Nicodemus, who is a teacher of Israel and yet seems very confused about the reality of new birth. Uh, Jesus took his men with him when he went to, uh, through Samaria and had this engagement with the woman at the well. When they went in to get food and came back and found him actually talking to a woman and they discovered that he valued people differently than the culture did. And, and so as Jesus takes them on, and, and there may be times when they were around when he fed the 5,000 because his disciples were very much helping him feed people when they had no resources. And so they've had a glimpse into the person of Jesus, and as they've turned around, 
I believe when Jesus comes in this particular scenario, it's a little bit like, Matthew, all the stuff that we've been talking about, now's the time, come follow me. And so I believe Matthew, or Levi, as it's referred to in this text, has had some experience with Jesus, seen his credibility, and so this sort of becomes this little tipping point where he says, listen, all this stuff that we've done, it's to show you who I really am, but now's the time to drop everything and come follow me. At this point, he is not calling them to be an apostle, which will happen later. It's, he's going to be a disciple. He's going to be a learner of Jesus. And yet, when I look at this passage, I'm kind of like, what's wrong with Jesus? You might say, why are you asking that? He's calling a tax collector. Who in in their right mind would call a, a tax collector who's basically got some serious issues in terms of other things to, that basically is kind of the scum of the earth as far as the people are concerned. We'll explain that in a minute. Why would you pick a tax collector? It, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the story that I heard from, um, or read this week. It comes from Sherry Portage from Michigan, and it was, uh, she was talking about her three children. And they loved to get up early, and once a week they would have the uh, garbage truck would come, and the kids would line up on the window, and they were really young, and they'd look out the window and watch this big truck come up, and they would extend these great fingers and pick up the garbage bin and throw it into the garbage truck and put it down. They were fascinated by this, and so the same time every week, they would run to the window, and they'd be looking for this fascination that they were uh, uh, watching the garbage truck. Well, on the day that she turned 35, her husband said to the children with a smile as they were all getting up, he says, kids, do you know what makes today so special? And the five-year-old rushed by, outstretched to the window and said, yes, it's garbage day. (laughs) You know, there's nothing like kids that either keep us humble or maybe devalue who we are (laughs) as parents. And I can't, I suspect that Levi, Matthew, being a tax collector, His whole life, even though he's making money, is that, oh, he's the tax collector. He's the sort of the scum of the earth. He's part of this whole system that's killing us with collecting taxes for Rome. He's not the guy you want to invite over. In fact, what the Romans would do is they would set up this uh, custom house in different villages, and there would have been one in, in Capernaum, and uh, the person who was assigned to that was usually a Roman citizen, and they were usually very rich and wealthy and had high status. But what they would do is they go into the population and they would hire individuals who would basically man those custom houses. And Matthew was one of those particular individuals who was collecting these taxes for the Romans. So not only does he have this sort of scummy job where he's collecting taxes for the Romans, but, but he's doing it for the Romans who is sort of public enemy number one, at least in terms of the attitude of the general populace. If you don't know much about the taxes, there is two kinds of taxes they generally extracted from the Jews. Uh, One was called a poll tax, which would be somewhat equivalent to an income tax. The other was what they call a um, a ground tax, which was more like property taxes. But one of the descriptions of what they did was this. Roman taxation, which uh, bore upon Israel, did it with such crushing weight, was systematic, cruel, relentless, and utterly regardless of who you were. And so the Romans didn't care about people. They just wanted money to fuel this massive machinery called the Roman Empire in terms of 
paying their troops and looking after all the projects that they had around the world. And so Levi doesn't have exactly the most popular job in the world, even though he took it. He's, he's probably disregarded. He's not valued by people. The only friends he would have would be other tax collectors and maybe, as we're going to see in the text, sinners who all sort of get treated as devalued scum of the earth because they're sinners. They're tax collectors. Nobody wants to be their friends because they don't help anybody. They take from everybody. And so as you begin to work through this, you discover that one of the individuals that Jesus decides to say, I want you to follow me, is this person who isn't valued by other people. He's not like a rock star. He's not like the most popular person. He's not, Jesus isn't picking the most talented, the most proficient, the most influential people, so to speak. He's picking a tax collector. And I suspect that whether he's used to it or not, Levi's quite used to the idea of saying, who want, of being devalued by people. That you're not worth it. You're our sort of relational community enemy because all you do is want something from us. And so why does Jesus bother taking the risk of someone like this? Well, I want to suggest to you that Jesus looks at people and values them way differently than we do. And as you discover through this text, you'll see that after he calls Levi, we find another snapshot a little further on in the day, and it's at his house. And he has filled the house with what the text says as sinners and tax collectors. The only friends he probably has because nobody else wants to relate to them. And so he's having a party and Jesus, of course, is there because Jesus had called him to say, listen, I want you to follow me. And as we think about this, I want you to sort of consider that if we were going to give Christianity, if I can contextualize it to our statement, But if you want to think about a believer, someone who really believes in who Jesus is and understands him, the most basic definition is that they're a person that will respond to his call to simply follow him. Now, probably five years ago, I wouldn't make this next statement, but I have to now. When we're talking about following Jesus, we're not clicking a button on Facebook or Instagram. That's not what it means to follow Jesus. What Jesus is talking about is that I want you, in a sense, to turn your life over to me, and I'm going to teach you the kind of beliefs and the values and priorities and behaviors and habits and character that I want to build into your life so that you can be on mission together with me. That's where this is ultimately going to go. But Jesus doesn't necessarily ask for resumes. He doesn't try to find the most talented or popular. In fact, that is obviously what's not going on here. He wouldn't have picked Levi as as part of this process. But he's one that he is inviting into relationship with Jesus, and you are going to be the learner, and I'm going to teach you everything you need to know in terms of living. Now, I don't know about you, but there's lots of people in this world who will claim to be Christians who say they've trusted Jesus, the problem is they really don't have much interest in following Jesus. They they don't have any problem of snipping out little snack foods of devotion once in a while, but statistics will tell us right now that there is a huge biblical illiteracy. The idea of even being in God's word is a huge struggle for many people. 
I was talking to a friend of mine who had recently uh, received some stats, and I haven't seen them, but he, his basic point was uh, they've done some studies to say that the number of times, and I don't want to get into a checklist, but they said the number of times a person is in God's word a week makes a huge impact in terms of how they're going to live and think. But what was interesting about the discussion is he said, if a person is in God's word only once, let's say Sunday morning, and they really don't have time to look at God's word for themselves during the week, that has virtually no impact on their life. It's, it kind of sips in and it's gone before you know it. But the other thing they said is that even if someone's in the word twice a week, it seems to have very little impact because there's just not enough there to dig in and, and take root in their life. In fact, they said that even if a person's in the board three times a week, there's a good chance that it has very little influence on the decisions they make or how they view the world. He says it's only when a person gets to being in the word four times a week that it actually starts changing the way they think and how they view things. Well, statistics are what they are, but it's interesting that in the process of saying that we're Christians, we like the idea that we're Christians or we're going to heaven. The question I wanna ask you is are you passionately committed to actually following Jesus? Because the danger is is that we do things like prayer and God's word as a self-help tool to to make life easier rather than a passionate commitment to be a learner of Jesus and to learn how to live according to what he calls us to be and do. And we're going to discover in here that there's going to be individuals who are part of the official religious system who know nothing about God's word and know nothing about Jesus, and yet their position would suggest otherwise. And Jesus is going to take somebody that they don't respect and they don't value, a tax collector, and he's going to turn him into an individual who actually God chose to give us the pages of scripture called the Gospel of Matthew. It's a good thing he didn't submit a resume because it would be like, everyone hates me, I have no friends except for sinners. I can count money. It's interesting that he's not the one that was put in charge of the money when Jesus got his disciples. That was the other guy. And so even the things he was gifted at was not the reason why Jesus called him. And so as they, they're sitting in this room and having a conversation and the disciples are there and all these sinners and tax collectors are there, the scribes and the Pharisees are watching this. And we don't know exactly where they're at. Maybe they're just sort of leaked into the group and are part of the room. And all of a sudden they're seeing this and they start talking to the disciples. And I find it fascinating that basically they're complaining. You notice the statement. Uh, hey guys, What's the deal here with your master who's eating with these sinners and these tax collectors? Doesn't he get the fact that this is a problem? Now we never see, we never hear that the disciples responded to that. We know that Jesus heard it. And so he jumps in and and interrupts what's going on and he's gonna respond to them. But I want you to notice that what the, the scribes and the Pharisees do is very typical of people. They had a problem with Jesus hanging out with these individuals, and so what they do is rather than going to Jesus directly, they complain to other people. And I don't know if they had this sort of idea that they're going to try to sort of move alongside the disciples and convince them that 
Jesus doesn't have the kind of integrity that they ought to be following him or whether they're just asking a simple question because they're confused, although the scribes and the Pharisees never seemed to be really curious about what Jesus was doing. They were always trying to find something wrong with him. And, and, and so they complain to other people about an individual who they're questioning his spirituality because he's hanging out with the wrong people. And unfortunately, that happens a lot. It's really easy, especially people who have a lot of knowledge about the law or the scriptures, to have this very clear perspective that I really know how this should work. And when people don't live up to their expectations or their personal convictions, they start questioning the spirituality of people who do things different than them. And what they're doing is clearly questioning Jesus' integrity because how come he doesn't get the fact that these guys are sinners and tax collectors? Why are you in their midst and you are hanging out with them and in a sense having a dinner party? And and by their very question, they have created a stereotype that devalues these people and saying they are not as valuable or as important, we certainly would not hang out with them because they don't fit our paradigm. They They don't meet the expectations we have because we know what God wants and they clearly do not. And Jesus, the fact that you're hanging out with them raises a question about your integrity. Because anyone who knows anything knows that they shouldn't be hanging out with them. And so they complain. And you will run into Christians who will do this at times. They will see other people doing things and they're not quite sure why they're doing it and it looks questionable. And you don't know the doors you're opening when you're involved with certain groups of people or in certain things. And so they start complaining about them. Not to the person, they don't go and honestly say, Jesus, we don't get this, why are you hanging out with them? We need, we need to understand. We just end up grumbling and complaining to other people that this person clearly isn't spiritual enough because they're not living according to the rules. And so Jesus interrupts them and he's going to say some profound things. But I wanna sort of address the association thing here a little bit because when Jesus hears them complaining, and you'll probably say if Jesus heard them, probably some of the sinners and the tax gatherers heard them too. And so they're sitting there listening to this complaint, it's kinda like, can you imagine what that'd be like? Sitting in a room of people and there's, you're overhearing other people complain, that what is that person doing here? Why would Jesus bother taking the time to hang out with you scum? And I want to suggest to you that they're really in a bit of a dilemma, but they're devaluing the people around them because they don't have their act together. It's a stereotype. They're labeling people, and it's based on, and they usually label them based on the problems that they see in their life. You know, I don't know where you've been in your journey, but I think all of us have been around people that we should be respecting and they should be the ones that are encouraging us, but all we've heard from them, maybe much of our life or in different phases of our life, is what a failure we are. You ever run into that in your, in your journey? I hope I'm not the only one that's ever experienced that, right? You'll never amount to much. You don't know how to do anything right. 
you're always a screw-up. I mean, sometimes that happens from our parents who may mean well, but often they communicate to their kids that they're not worth anything. Sometimes the people that we think are our best friends are the ones that tend to complain about us the most. I don't know if you've ever been on the, on the receiving end of that, but I don't know what it would be like to sit in there with Jesus, although that would be probably the best safeguard, to hear these people over here saying, doesn't Jesus know these people are not worth hanging out? And so it becomes one of this thing of who really is spiritual here? Ran across a, a, a story by Os Guinness who talked about, and I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his last name, I'm going to go with Thomas uh, Lenacray, was the king's physician for Henry VII and Henry VIII of England. He was the founder of the Royal College of Physicians and a friend to the great Renaissance thinkers Erasmus and Sir Thomas More. Late in life, he decided that he wanted to become a priest, and so someone gave him a copy of the Gospels to read through. Uh, he was also uh, lived at that time where, for the church, it was kind of one of their darkest hours, not one of the great proud moments, because the church had uh, succumbed to things like bribery and corruption and incest and murder, and it just was a really pathetic time in the church history. And he's, it, the statement comes out where he read the gospel for himself. He came to the conclusion because he was amazed and troubled when he read it. He said this, either these are not the gospels or we're not really Christians. And he understood as he began to read this to look at what Jesus did in the gospels and looked at the behavior of some Christians and he sort of came to the same conclusion. Either these aren't really the gospels or maybe we're not Christians because we're not reflecting any of this. And so one of the things we have to be really careful about is not only our own walk with Christ, but how we judge other people around us. It's really easy to make myself feel better by condemning the problems that I don't have that I see in other individuals because often I struggle with my own sense of walk and purity and perfection. And so as he goes through this journey, it becomes a struggle. But I want you to sort of look at the issue of this, what I'm calling the theology of acceptance. They're walking in and they've come upon this and they're questioning why Jesus is associating and affirming and participating with these particular kinds of people. And as Jesus responds to them, I want to make this basic principle. Christ was not with sinners and tax collectors not, or Christ was with sinners and tax collectors, not because he accepted them, but because they needed him. See, in our culture, we, we talk a lot about love. And in our culture, love and acceptance is exactly the same thing. If you love somebody, then you are clearly obligated to accept them and often a lot of other stuff that they may do or not do. But we have to remember, this might make you think a little bit, is that God's unconditional love, if you read John 3.16, is for everybody. But the first thing is that God's love never saved anyone. If you read John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that everyone will get to go to heaven and be in a happy place. No, it doesn't say that. It says he loved everyone that if they believe in Christ... 
they won't perish. And so the fact that God loves everyone does not mean he accepts any of us. In fact, I will make the case that God doesn't accept any of us on our own merits. He doesn't accept any of us based on our own resume. He doesn't accept any of us based on our performance or how much money we have or what culture we were born into or what ethnic group that we were born into. It's not that God's love saves us, it's his grace that saves us. And so Jesus was hanging out with these people not because he loved and accepted them, he loved them, but they needed him because they have no hope. Even from the religious system of that time, they were devalued as human beings and they have no sense of encouragement, no pathway to hope because even the religious system basically condemned them and stereotyped them as being sinners and tax collectors. And so Jesus was not with sinners and tax gatherers, not because he accepted them, but because they needed him. And in some ways, we're to love everybody. But the basis by which we accept people as part of the family of God is the same basis by which God accepts us. It's not because I'm talented, it's not because I'm skilled, it's not because I've got an education. God accepts me on the basis that I put faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins where God then removes me from the wrath of God. He forgives my sins. He adopts me into his family and gives me the righteousness of Christ. That's what his acceptance looks like. And so if I try to earn God's acceptance based on doing the right things or trying to be basically good enough, or trying to do enough good things that God will be impressed and when I die I go to a better place, that's a totally dead-end journey. Because the Bible is very clear, it's not by works. Romans tells us that we're not good enough in God's sight. And so Christ was with sinners and tax collectors not because he accepted them, but because they needed him. One of the things that's true about this whole process is that Jesus then responds and he uses this picture of a physician. People who are well don't need a physician, just those who are sick. Now he's clearly going to make a point to the scribes and the Pharisees. I don't usually think that the sinners and tax collectors know that they're messed up, right? I think they probably have a clear indication because they've heard the voices from the leaders and the community and everybody else that They're less than the community. And some of us live with that same struggle, that we think that we're less than other people because of my background or my upbringing, or we've had parents or friends who've who've labeled us and called us things, and we've been defining our life by that reality for much of our lives. But then Jesus comes into the picture and he says, the issue isn't how valuable you are compared to other people, You're valuable because I choose to value you. God created us in his image and makes every single human being, regardless of ethnic background or where they live in the world or their social economic problem, that Christ died for the world. And so he values people very different than us. And so the picture of a physician is that he's saying, listen, it's those who are sick that need a physician to help bring healing and a cure. But I noticed, you notice that he weaves in there, it's like not those 
not those who are well that need a physician. And obviously the oxymoronic idea there is, as far as God is concerned, everybody in the planet is sick, at least sick spiritually. And so he raises this issue, and the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees is kind of religious narcissism. We're the authorities. We get to determine your value. We'll determine who you should hang out with and who you shouldn't hang out with. And yet these are individuals, in spite of their religious training and their knowledge, don't really know Jesus very well. And so the principle about humanity, as you begin to look at this, is that every one of us is, if I can use the language, spiritually sick. And every one of us, but the Pharisees don't seem to get that. The scribes don't seem to understand it. The scriptures say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There isn't a human being on the planet that will stand before God and say, I think I did a pretty good job. I think you should let me into heaven. They're not going to like the answer. I went to church my whole life, and, and so therefore I'm religious and spiritual. That sounds like Matthew 7 where people said, look at all the stuff we did for you, Lord. And he goes, I don't even know you, so you don't get in here. And so Jesus broaches this response that he has to the scribes complaining about what he's doing. And he says to them very simply, it's those individuals who are sick that really need my presence and that's why I'm here. That's why I'm hanging out with these kinds of people. And one of the things that I want to encourage you to do is that the reason we hang out with people that don't know Jesus is because he's the only answer to their spiritual sickness. And yet the struggle that you and I have is that we're often so busy doing our own thing that there's often many, many Christians who have no meaningful non-Christian friends at all that we've ended up isolating ourselves from the very people that God, that Jesus would sit down and have dinner with and, and hang out with because, not because he's by doing that saying I accept these people, but he knows that they need him. And the question is, do we really know that people need Jesus? Because if we simply treat our Christianity like a self-help tool to just be nicer people and hang out with the right individuals, then we'll never catch that heartbeat and that vision that Jesus is the physician to heal the sickness in the human heart. So Jesus is not telling the scribes and Pharisees that they need to be more accepting of people. Jesus is pointing out that every human being needs the great physician. There was a, another story that I ran across it was written by uh, Bruce McIver, and he was uh, in a hospital bed on the eve of his open heart surgery. He was a pastor, and he was uh, talking to the cardiologist, Dr. Dudley Johnson. He says, can you fix my heart? And the physician said, sure, and walked out of the room. Following the 12-hour surgery, McIver asked Johnson, in light of the blocked arteries that I had when I checked into the hospital, how much blood supply do I now have? And his response is, all you'll ever need. Upon his discharge from the hospital, McIver's wife, 
asked the doctor, what about my husband's future quality of life? And Dr. Johnson paused for a second and then said, I fixed his heart, the quality of his life is up to him. I want to challenge you with the idea that if Jesus has fixed your heart, what's the quality of your following him now? See, the quality of life we have is often wrapped around the security of money and possessions and friends and comforts. But the people who really understand that Jesus has fixed their heart have such a sense of security and a sense of peace in terms of what God has done for them that they, like Jesus, go, you know what? I need to hang out with people not because I'm trying to tell everyone I accept them. I need to communicate that they need Jesus. And so the question is, is does Jesus need to fix your heart again? Do you need a follow-up surgery? So that it's not just that I get to go to heaven, but that he infuses within you his love and compassion and mercy so that you won't stand around complaining about what other Christians do because they're not doing the things that you think they ought to do, but you're willing to step into the lives of people who you're not trying to say, I accept them, but they need Jesus desperately, and that's why I'm here. And so Jesus finishes this off with a simple admonition that he says, I didn't come to call the righteous. And there's lots of people who think they're okay in and of themselves, that they're fine, that they don't need Jesus. They don't need this religious crutch stuff. I I don't buy it. I don't need it. I'm doing fine on my own. They think they're righteous, but Jesus said, I didn't come to call those people. I've got no, there's no, no place in my ministry. There's no place in God's kingdom for people who think they don't need Jesus. They don't need a physician. He says, I came simply to call sinners. And it gets us right back to the reality of the gospel. I said this before, but I assume you forgot. But I've, I've often used it time and time again, is that going to church and being part of a church doesn't make me a Christian any more than me standing in a garage makes me a mechanic. Because it's not about following just his teachings or biblical sayings. It's about following Jesus. The problem for us is that because Jesus isn't physically here, we go, I don't know how to do that. I I just don't have a sense of of him being a real person, and so I struggle with that, and and so out of sight, out of mind, and and so then my motivation to read God's word just seems like a religious activity or a responsibility, not where I'm drinking deeply of the heart and the mind of Christ so that I know how I might follow him. And I want to encourage you to say that today may be a great day to reaffirm Jesus' call in your life. Not just that I receive the gospel of Jesus Christ and I have my sins forgiven so I can live with a certain level of peace to know that regardless of how messed up this life goes or how many mistakes I make, I'm secure in Jesus and get to go to heaven. But today might be a day in one sense 
that you might allow Jesus to reaffirm your value to him because you don't have to be a rock star. You don't have to be popular. You can feel like a tax collector or a sinner who everybody else around you may devalue as a person that's not worth hanging out. And Jesus is going to hang out in your space and in your place because he values everyone because we're all spiritually sick. I hesitate a little bit about sharing this next illustration, but me, like a dad, like to brag about my kids. I have two great kids. Got a text from my daughter this week who called some friends and said, you know, I just, God put it on my heart that we need to be praying about how we need to be more in the mission of Christ. She called all her friends from her community group, got them together, and they just prayed for one another. I was kind of like, wow. For an old wrinkly dad of 62, that's pretty energizing. But my son's in a journey where I think he's, he's, going to, he's changing jobs. Hopefully his boss isn't listening to this because he hasn't talked to him until Monday about this, but anyway. <laughs> I feel pretty confident he's not watching, so don't anybody send this to him, okay, till Monday, after Monday. But he's going to sit down on Monday and say that he's accepted a job in another place. A friend of his sent him a little illustration that I want to share with you. It's this, a father said to his daughter, you have graduated with honors. Here is a Jeep I bought many years ago. It's pretty old now, but before I give it to you, take it to the used car lot uh, downtown and tell him I want to sell it and see how much you can get for it. Well, the daughter went to the used car lot, returned to the father and said, well, they offered me $1,000 because it looks pretty worn out. The father said, well, now I want you to take it to the pawn shop. And the daughter went down to the pawn shop, returned, and they said, well, they'll only give me $100. Then the father asked his daughter to go to a Jeep club and show the Jeep to those individuals and see what they say. So she took the Jeep down and she came back and she was like shaking. And she says, what's the matter? She said, Dad, you won't believe it. Some of these people at the club offered me $100,000 for this. And he said, why? Well, they said it's an iconic Jeep and sought by many collectors and it's pretty rare. And the father said this to the daughter. The right place values you the right way. If you are not valued, don't be angry. It means you're in the wrong place. Those who know your value are those who appreciate you. Never stay in a place where no one sees your value. Now the place that many of us have been living is in the many voices we've heard over the years, whether it's religious leaders or family or so-called friends, maybe it's siblings, who've told you that you're not worth anything, that you don't have value, that you'll never do anything that makes a difference. You'll never live up to their expectation because they've got so many expectations that you've just given up. Or you've put yourself into a gear to try to prove everyone wrong because you can't desperately deal with the struggle of not having value. 
and you've been living in that verbal space much of your life, and even if you've dealt with some of it, some of it still haunts you in terms of your value and making a difference, and, and you've even questioned whether God can use you because you now have bought into the lie that you don't really have any value. I'm just a sinner or a tax collector. But Jesus comes to us and he says, listen, I can never accept any of you on your own, but I know your value, not because of what you can do for me, but what I can do for you. Because what Jesus sees is a tax collector sitting at a booth who has no value in the community because of all that he does to create pain and suffering from everybody else around him. And he says, Levi, follow me. And I'm going to take you from being a tax collector that nobody cares about to a person who's going to change people's lives. Because sometimes the the place where you're living is imprisoned by our own thoughts and feelings. And some of us need to get before his throne of grace and get on our knees and say, God, I've been buying into these lies my whole life. And if you can take someone like Levi, who's a tax collector, and see the value in him, not because of what he can do for you, but what you can do in him, that's what I want you to do in me. Because there's nothing worse than having heart surgery and then ruining the quality of our Christian life because we're entrapped by the voices of people that for years have told us that we have no value. It begins with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you're in this journey and realize that you've maybe been trying to do all kinds of things for God because you think that'll make you acceptable to him and valuable to him, I encourage you to simply get on your knees, at least in your heart, and say, God, I I just want to surrender to you by trusting Jesus and finding forgiveness of sins And then I want you to tell me what my value is as a child of the living God so that I simply might follow you. Father, we... Sometimes the greatest enemy we face is ourselves. We didn't get there by ourselves. We've had people that we have respected and admired in our life that sometimes have given us all the wrong messages. That we've been in churches that have had so many demands and expectations about what right is and what spirituality looks like that we've just completely lost our desire to even be part of a community. Too many rules, too many expectations, too many complaints and criticisms. But Father, I pray that even as we allow our thoughts to rummage through Jesus hanging out with sinners and tax collectors, that you might rummage around in our own heart to realize that you're the one that gives us value. 
and that we need to surrender to you to know that you can give us a value that we can't give ourselves, that other people can't give to us, but only Christ as the great physician can heal the wounds of our heart and set us free to understand the amazing and staggering reality of what it means to be a child of God who is greatly loved and valued by our Father. And in the most simplest way, you don't call us to go change the world or that we have to be certainly gifted in certain ways to make a difference. What we need to hear from you, what we need to respond to is simply when you say, follow me, that we'll drop what we're doing and we'll follow Jesus. One day at a time, every day for the rest of our life. Father, give us that kind of courage and faith for you to heal our heart and help us to see the value that you can build into us as a child of the living God. And for this we pray in Christ's name, amen.